Hi guys, welcome back. I just got back this week from my first road trip of the season. We did the sea, we were honored to do the season opener for the Young America's Foundation's online streaming event series. I was at DeSales University in Pennsylvania and I talked to the students there about the big tech crisis. Actually, the title of my speech was Big Tech is a Threat to Humanity. Because we all understand, right, that big tech censors conservatives and it's really annoying to be deprioritized and to be demonetized. But in order to create an actual battle plan, how do we fix this? We have to understand the threat that they are posing. What is the specific threat? Why do they censor the topics that they choose to censor? Election integrity, transgenderism, COVID-19. And how does big tech work in concert with corrupt politicians and elected officials and the mainstream media to create an environment, to condition the American public for what the radical left has in store for us. And of course, we talked about the steps that we can take legally to stop big tech from doing what they're doing. So thank you so much to the Young America's Foundation and to DeSales University for hosting me. And I hope you enjoy the speech. Thank you all for having me today. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you to the Young America's Foundation for hosting these wonderful events at college campuses all across the country. Thank you to Governor Scott Walker for all of what he does to make these nights possible, and Pat Coyle as well. Um, a huge thank you to our hosts, which is Sales University. Thank you for hosting this, and to all of you for being here. I am honored to open YAF's online streaming events for this fall season, so thank you to everyone that's tuned in on YAF TV, the YouTube channel of the Young America's Foundation. If you haven't already, please subscribe and click that bell so that we can notify you every time we go live all season long. There are a lot of great events coming up. So tonight, I wanna to talk to you about big tech. Right now, in the state of Texas, there is a law that might make it all the way to the Supreme Court, and this is a good thing. This law would forbid big tech companies from censoring conservatives based on their viewpoint. And the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals just ruled that this law is constitutional and that any challenge against it is, is null and void. So we're hoping that this will lead to a big showdown in front, of the, in front of the Supreme Court, give the Supreme Court the opportunity to say, you know what, inherent to the right to free speech is not a right to muzzle speech. If this happens, my friends, if this law is upheld in the state of Texas at the Supreme Court level, then our nation as we know it will be changed for the better. This will be the first victory in a series of victories that are necessary to take on the radical left and to defend our nation from what they intend for us. Remember, there's been no institution, public or private, in our country that has gained as much power in as short of an amount of time as big tech has. When the Marxists co-opted our public school system, it took them 50 years before that manifested. When deep state operatives infiltrated the FBI, sure, maybe that started with J. Edgar Hoover, but it took until the last seven years for the fruits of that to become apparent to us for the FBI to be weaponized against individuals who happen to dissent from radical leftist ideology. When communists sub sought to subvert the Catholic Church, that took almost 100 years for those agents to become active in impacting the hierarchy and the administration of the church itself. When Big Pharma swallowed actual medical science, that took decades. When cultural Marxists sought to subvert the family, it took them from feminists destroying women to the sexual revolution destroying sex to pornography and no-fault divorce destroying men and marriage to the current radical gender ideology targeting our children. But big tech, in 15 years, less than 15 years for some of these platforms, big tech has become the most powerful ruler in our nation, targeting Christians, conservatives, biology, science, dissent of government officials, big tech has established themselves as the arbiter of truth. That's why I say to you, as I, as I stand here defending the title of my speech that big tech is waging a war against humanity, they must be stopped because they are attempting to control your speech. 
Now, the three most apparent examples of this, if you're on Twitter or Facebook or YouTube, the three, the three topics that are censored the most are, of course, comments or commentary on transgenderism, the transgender ideology, and gender in general, election integrity, any comments or criticism on the outcome of the 2020 presidential election or any of the election systems that took place or changes to those processes that took place in the lead up to the 2020 election, and of course, COVID-19 and the mitigations that have been imposed on us by the public health officials. Now, the reason that big tech attempts to control speech, particularly in these three areas, is because they are using a, a classic Marxist strategy of redefining words. The reason that the radical left redefines words is twofold. First, for the obvious. They want to push their own political agenda, and that's useful for them. But second, if you are able to redefine a word, then you become the arbiter of truth. Think about any, any topic here. Take gender. If you are able to sit there, if big tech is able to sit there and say, no, no, you're not allowed to say that there are only two genders, male and female, then what as, as individuals, what is our innate reaction? What does human nature call us to do? We turn to the person that says, no, that's not, that's not correct. And we say, well, what is correct? And then they tell us what their version of reality is. They tell us what's correct. That makes them the arbiter of truth. If someone is the arbiter of truth, then they become the arbiter of reality. And in this kind of position, this, this creates an authoritarian because they are able to change anything at any time for any purpose to serve their, to serve their own political agenda. We see this in multiple areas. We see this in how the left labels anybody who questions the 2020 election as insurrectionists. We see this in how parents who challenge critical race theory at school boards are called domestic terrorists. And the reason big tech wants to control you and assert themselves as the arbiter of truth, assert themselves as the authoritarian, is because they want to control our country. They want to control our country in many ways. The Facebook actually admitted to being part of this, admitting to taking part in this. Mark Zuckerberg, when he was on Joe Rogan's podcast, he told Rogan that the FBI had come to Facebook or Meta's headquarter, Meta being the parent company of Facebook, and told them in the lead up to the 2020 election that they might face Rus Russian disinformation. The way the FBI defined Russian disinformation led Facebook to censor the Hunter Biden laptop story. After the 2020 election, up to 30% of Democrats said, you know, if we had known that that story was true, we would have reconsidered our vote for Joe Biden. That means that the FBI, hand in hand with Facebook, with big tech, very probably impacted the outcome of a presidential election based on a lie. Similarly, on Twitter, if we want to talk not just governmental, if we want to talk cultural, on Twitter right now, Twitter is prohibiting, they are banning, they're removing tweets of photographs of the arms of young girls who have had prosthetic trans penises created from the flesh taken off their forearm. I don't know if you guys have seen these photos, they're grotesque. Twitter's not allowing photos of these post-op surgeries because it, it violates their human mutilation policy. But is that the real reason or is the reason because they don't want people to understand the reality of what the transgender ideology is inflicting on young women? Something culturally, people, regardless of politics, would not accept if they knew the reality of it. That's governmental, that's cultural, and then, and then it, it's individual as well. On YouTube, YouTube actually recently changed their terms of service. We are now allowed to say that cloth face masks with gaps in the side, under the nose even, obviously don't stop the transmission of the COVID-19 virus or respiratory viruses like SARS-CoV-2. But for the past two years, we were not allowed to say that. If you did say that, your video was first demonetized, then it was removed entirely, your account got a strike, and if you get three strikes, then you're permanently banned from YouTube. So what they claimed was dangerous misinformation for the past two years has suddenly become perfectly scientific and accurate, and you are permitted to say it. It's not just hypothetical either. All of you students sitting in this room, your futures are impacted by big tech's behavior too because big tech is taking part in what is essentially a social credit score. 
everyone here, if I ask for a show of hands, every single person in this room would tell me that they're a participant in some kind of social media, which means that your opinion is on the internet. What you believe and what you are against, what you stand for, what you value, the principles you hold are evident on the internet where things are never erased. And make no mistake, companies research you. Companies look you up, companies look for these things. And if you are Christian, if you are conservative, if you are a supporter of Donald Trump, if you are against the radical leftist ideology, they hold that against you. They have to, these companies. They can't have anything but conformists in their rank because these companies are controlled by what's called ESG, environmental, social, and governance metrics. These metrics at the, at the top levels of these companies, if they do not have a high enough, it's essentially a social credit score for businesses as well, if they don't have a high enough ranking on these ESG metrics, then they aren't able to do business with the big financial institutions. So even if these companies themselves as individuals don't care about your religious beliefs or your political beliefs, they have to fill the ranks of their, of, they have to fill their jobs with people who agree with the radical leftist ESG metrics or else it hurts their companies. You'll face this as soon as you apply for jobs. You'll face this in every interview. You'll face this in every DEI training that you do. Every diversion and or diversity and inclusion officer that you meet with in HR meetings and job training. Big tech is actively working to revolt against our established form of government. They are fomenting and facilitating a revolution to induce a radical change in our political system. They're violating basic morals, ethics, traditions, norms, and yes, even laws to do so. It's our responsibility to stop them. In fact, big tech is actually one in a trifecta of apparatus seeking to undermine the US system of self-governance and instead impose on us their preference, which is Marxism. One of these three without the other would not be able to do it. Two without the third would not be able to accomplish their goal. This trifecta that I'm talking about is big tech, the mainstream media, and corrupt politicians. And we're gonna talk about how this trifecta actually works in one moment. But for now, I wanna, I wanna talk just for another minute about the big tech issue. And I wanna admit something to you tonight. At first, over the, past, over the course of the past couple of years, I didn't recognize big tech for the threat that it is. I'm a millennial, I love social media. I grew up on, I know this isn't cool now to all you Gen Zers, but I grew up on Facebook, where all the boomers are now. I grew up on Facebook. I've had, I've had a Twitter account and been active on Twitter for the past almost 15 years. I haven't quite brought myself to be on TikTok, but I'm on Instagram and Snapchat and all the rest of them. I love social media. It's the way that we connect. It's the way that we've been able to get opportunities that, that other generations have had to work years and years and years to earn their way up the ladder. We can skip that by proving, by proving to businesses or politicians or just proving to the marketplace that you know we, it, we're worth it now. We're qualified now for this position. Big tech is, social media has been something amazing in my life. And I didn't believe it at first when people said, you know, they're censoring conservatives. Honestly, in my head, I thought, well, maybe your tweet's just not that funny. Maybe that's why it's not getting good traction. Maybe you're not really social, but uh, shadow banned. And then of course, I started believing it when it happened to me. And it did happen to me. I started getting fact checks on my content. This started on Facebook where a video, I'd post a video and some, some website that I was not familiar with, name I didn't recognize, would claim that the information was false. And as a result of that fact check, even, even when I debunked the fact checks, which I always have because they're phony fact checks, my content would be deprioritized. The algorithm would prevent me from getting any reach, my videos would not get any views anymore, and my page would be penalized and then demonetized. This has happened innumerable times across all of the social media platforms where um, my show content is posted. But something I noticed was that it was always related to three topics. It was always related to election integrity, to transgender ideology, and to COVID-19. Every time. And I realized this is not arbitrary. They're not just tweaking me or other conservatives. This is not a disgruntled tech in Twitter headquarters who doesn't like that some conservatives tweet is going viral and wants to downplay it. No, no. Each of these three battlefronts, election integrity, the transgender agenda, and COVID, are actually critical parts 
of the leftist agenda to impose Marxism on our country. And I think it's really important tonight for us to understand how this works. First, the left undermines our voting system, which is the bedrock of self-governance. They do this in order to rig elections to produce the results that will ensure that these leftist politicians have power essentially in perpetuity so that voters cannot hold them accountable for positions and policies that are very unpopular. At the same time, the left destroys objective truth or destroys reality by telling you that a man can be a woman if he feels like it. And if you don't celebrate that, it's transphobic. You're told that you're a hateful bigot if you don't cheer for Leah Thomas, who is the biological man who still has male genitalia and dates a woman, but identifies as a woman and competes as a woman, breaking records even in the Ivy League women's swimming championships and destroying actual female competition and opportunity. Destroying objective truth and reality in this way conditions citizens to accept anything that the so-called experts, the experts, tell them. So then enter COVID-19. The same leftist politicians who rigged our election systems to give themselves basically permanent power and who tell you that you are hateful and bigoted if you think that it's unfair for a dude to win the ladies' races, these same people are now demanding that we hand over all of our remaining rights and freedoms to them in order to keep other people safe, or so they say. But this is how it works in a technocracy. You and I are not allowed to question the experts. And so that brings us, well, who are the experts? Of course, we're not talking about actual experts. Think about, for example, what happened to Dr. Robert Malone. Who is Dr. Robert Malone? He holds over half a dozen patents for inventing the technology used in the mRNA vaccine. You'd think he'd be one of the most prominent experts surrounding COVID, yet he was banned from Twitter. He was banned from big tech. Why? Because he sent a tweet questioning whether the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine was effective. Yeah, it's not. But why did Twitter care if a doctor with, honestly, with all due respect, a minimal social media following, why did they care if he claimed that the Pfizer vaccine was ineffective? Well, because Twitter and big tech are working in tandem with the left to suppress the truth about COVID, the truth being that the virus is dangerous to some people, maybe very old, very sick, very fat people, but in general, it's not fatal for the rest of us. Most of us have had it and been perfectly fine. But the left must suppress that, that reality, that truth, in order to convince people that COVID is so dangerous that it justifies the draconian power grabs by the government. So the experts are not the actual experts. The experts are defined by the left. The left, who has become the arbiter of truth and the arbiter of the arbiters of truth. That's why Twitter and Facebook banned a sitting president of the United States, Donald Trump, after January 6th. Remember, we could all hear President Trump's speech that day, or we could read the transcript afterwards ourselves. We know he did not call for violence. He called for peaceful protests. And when the few people started rioting, he told them to stop and to go home. Yet big tech banned Trump for inciting an insurrection. Why? Not because this was reality, but because the left used January 6th and their false premise about January 6th to try to abolish the filibuster in the Senate to ram through the Democrats' federal takeover of elections, which the left dishonestly branded as protecting our democracy from people like Donald Trump. That bill, of course, would have done no such thing. It simply would have federalized our election system to ensure that the Democrats remained in power in perpetuity. The same justification for the raid on Mar-a-Lago that just happened, the FBI raiding Trump's residence in Florida. It was not and is not about classified documents. It is very obviously a fishing expedition because the January 6th committee subpoenaed the National Archives for all documents related to January 6th in hopes of finding something on Trump. They want to criminalize Trump's speech about election integrity in order to criminalize your speech and my speech about election integrity so that they can cheat and rig elections and remain in power in perpetuity, and none of us will be allowed to protest unless we want to be called domestic terrorists or potentially face jail time. Are you following the pattern here? We see big tech 
as one part of this apparatus of evil, this trifecta of big tech, the mainstream media, and corrupt politicians actively working to revolt against our established form of government. This is how this trifecta works. First, we have corrupt politicians who do bad things. Sometimes they do evil things. Then big tech swoops in and they censor the truth. They obscure reality. They prevent the corruption the politicians are committing from being exposed. They hide it from you. And then in this information vacuum that big tech has created, in swoops the mainstream media, peddling fake news, inventing stories, ignoring facts in service of the radical leftist agenda. My friends, this trifecta shapes our culture. It is effective. It conditions the minds of the people in our country. It impacts the outcomes of elections, and it threatens our constitutional republic. Big tech is extremely powerful. Big tech has proved that they will take the power that they have and they will abuse it. The goal of the radical left is not hidden from us. I don't have to stand here and infer from what the radical left says that their goal for our country is Marxism. They have said this themselves in the policies that they support, the people they surround themselves with, and the lobbies and the groups that they actively work in tandem with. What is the result of Marxism? I know you're at a university right now, but all you have to do is open a textbook to see that the result of Marxism in the history of the world is the same thing every time. It's destruction of humanity. Fortunately, we do have a smorgasbord of solutions to solve the big tech problem. We can do, states across the country can do what Texas did, and they can essentially declare big tech, if the big tech platforms are of a certain size, you, they can be declared to be a common carrier. Common carriers like a phone company or an internet company, where that company can't discriminate against you. They can't refuse to sell you phone service or internet service based on your political beliefs. If you want to buy their product, they have to sell it to you. That's a common carrier. This can be true for big tech too. And if it is, it will change the landscape of how big tech behaves. We also have on our books right now, we have antitrust laws. We can enforce antitrust laws against the monopoly that big tech has created. There's no doubt that these, that these platforms, whether it's Amazon, whether it's Google, whether it's Facebook and Instagram and YouTube, that they behave like a predatory monopoly. All we have to do is look at what they did to Parler in tandem with each other, destroying Parler's ambition to compete with big tech. It's a perf perfect case study in predatory monopoly. We can enforce these antitrust laws. We can also reform Section 230, and there's two ways to do that. Section 230 gives liability or gives immunity from liability to big tech companies. It defines them as platforms, not publishers. So the difference between a publisher is a publisher exercises editorial discretion and therefore, because they are a publisher, they are responsible for everything that they publish. They have liability for that which they write, that which they broadcast, that which they allow to be on their platform. A platform is different. A platform simply gives others the opportunity to be publishers. And that's what big tech claims to be. They say, we have no liability because we are not the ones who are deciding what people can say and what people cannot say. Except now they are. Now they are exercising editorial discretion over what we are allowed to say, what we are allowed to post on social media, which means they should not enjoy the immunity from the liability. You can't have it both ways. You can, either, you can either be immune from that liability or you can stop censoring and act as a platform. There's also a legal argument that Section 230, as it's currently interpreted, is simply unconstitutional. And for those nerds in the audience, I would refer you to constitutional attorney Josh Hammer's argument on that, which I find very convincing. There's also the matter of the public-private collusion that big tech engages with. Facebook has admitted to this, and Twitter has unintentionally admitted to this as well. Alex Berenson is a journalist who used to report for the New York Times. He's now an independent journalist. He was at the forefront of reporting about COVID-19, everything from lockdowns to masks to vaccines. 
And Twitter banned him for criticizing the public health narrative. But Alex Berenson sued Twitter, and he won. He's been reinstated, and during discovery, he found communications between Twitter and the White House, where the White House was requesting that Twitter ban Alex Berenson. This is not something that the White House is allowed to do. The White House is not allowed to target individuals, nor are they allowed to use a private entity, the private sector, to do what they, as government officials, are not allowed to do. And yet, Twitter's not the only one who is guilty of this. Facebook as well, the Mark Zuckerberg example I gave before, Facebook has admitted that they do this publicly as well. The final thing that we can do to address the big tech issue is the hardest thing of all, and that is to build our own infrastructure of non-cancelable servers. What Parler taught us was that we can't just create a new app or create a new social network and throw it into the marketplace to compete with big tech. They own too much of the infrastructure. Even if the website that you build works, how do you know that Apple will let you on the App Store? How do you know that Google will let you on Google Play? How do you know Amazon Web Services won't kick you off? That's what they did to Parler. So conservatives need to build our own infrastructure of non-cancelable apparatus. This is what, by the way, Rumble has done. That's what Locals relies on. There are companies who are dedicated to free speech who refuse to have anything to do with the infrastructure owned and controlled by radical leftists. If we do these five things, then we will be able to solve the big tech problem. We will be able to change this trifecta of evil, big tech, corrupt politicians, and the mainstream media. But even more importantly, we must understand that big tech is actually not really the problem. Big tech is a symptom of the ideology of the radical left. Everything the radical left does is aimed at controlling everything and everyone, at undermining our current system of government, destroying our constitution and our constitutionally protected freedoms, and using speech control and thought reform to topple our cultural institutions in order to topple our government institutions in order to usher in Marxism in our country. The left works to subvert our nation from within by demonizing our founding fathers, for example, as racist, sexist, misogynists, delegitimizing the United States as a whole by claiming that our forefathers stole the land, claiming our whole nation was built on slavery, like the 1619 Project claimed, and is therefore inherently and inst institutionally and irredeemably racist. The destruction of our American system of government is inherent to the ideology of the left. It's why the Black Lives Matter movement wants to abolish capitalism, why they want to abolish the nuclear family. It's why our government schools, the public school system, teaches children that they're racist if they have white skin and they're oppressed if they have black skin. It's why these same schools are actively trying to sever children from their parents by abolishing parental rights, including the right of parents to even know if their minor child is transitioning genders at school. It's why the left, who tells us that they care about women, are cheering for Leah Thomas, the man who is destroying women's sport. It's why using climate change and COVID as an excuse, the left stifled your free speech, your freedom of assembly, your freedom of religion, your right to do business, and your right to provide for your family. It's why the mainstream media lies about January 6th, so the corrupt leftist politicians in our government can centralize power under the guise of saving our democracy. It's why people like you and like me are such a threat to the left's ultimate agenda for the United States that big tech must exercise their powerful reach and silence us. The destruction of the United States system of government is inherent to the left's poisonous ideology. Big tech is a willing, enthusiastic participant making this a reality. If conservatives and independent-minded Americans believe in our nation, first, we must stop the bleeding by stopping big tech. And only then can we confront the Marxist ideology that threatens the United States that we love. Thank you. All right. So if you remember a few months back, you saw that Elon Musk was trying to buy Twitter. Now, there were a few bumps in the road and he hasn't really done it yet because of the bots and all that. 
But what do you see as the future of platforms like Twitter, especially since we're seeing more platforms pop up like Truth Social? Um, interesting question. First of all, I was personally hoping that Elon Musk would buy Twitter. I know he's not conservative. We don't share views on many things. But he has demonstrated a commitment to free speech, which I think would save Twitter. I do think what he's done, even by attempting to buy it and now attempting to pull out of the deal is he's exposed Twitter for the lies that they've told to the market, which has caused them incredible damage. Part of me is actually really sad about that because I'm a Twitter junkie. If I'm on my phone, the likelihood of me being on Twitter is pretty high. That's, that's probably the app that I visit the most. So on one hand, I don't want to see that go away. The other part of me understands that Twitter has become the public square for political discourse. Yes, a smaller percentage of Americans are on Twitter than on Facebook or TikTok or the other social platforms, but political speech is concentrated to Twitter. And if political speech is concentrated to Twitter, then it's incredibly dangerous for one part of political speech to be censored. So in order to compete with Twitter, which could force them, as competition does or should do, could force them to rescind some of their more destructive policies. We do have to compete, but we can't just compete anymore by, like I said in my speech, we can't just compete by offering another platform. This is actually something I've changed my mind on. Three or four years ago, I thought, oh my gosh, guys, just build another website. Someone who knows how to code, like, let's compete. Let's just use the marketplace. Let's keep government out of this. We don't want to jump out of the frying pan of leftist owners of big tech into the fire of leftist government officials controlling big tech. But since that, since I held that opinion, I've seen the reality of the thing. And the reality of the thing is that the collusion between government and big tech is so severe that before we will be able to offer a competitor in a marketplace where that competitor would stand a chance, we first have to address um, the unfairness in the market, and that has to be done by government officials. Thank you for the question. And if anyone else has questions, please get in line. Um, but my question is, what is one of your posts that you found most surprisingly to be fact-checked? Oh, honestly, at this point, I'm so cynical about my posts that I predict which ones are going to be fact-checked before, before we even post them. If I say anything about gun safety, it's always fact-checked, especially if I talk about the Obama Department of Justice's analysis of the 1994 assault weapons ban. It was 10 years that we banned AR-15s. Obama's Department of Justice did an analysis looking at whether this was effective or not. This should have been a good case study, and they found that it, it did not measurably reduce instances of gun violence, so it didn't work. And anytime I talk about that, I always get I always get a fact check. Obviously, if I talk about, if I you know, say the phrase, you know, there are only two genders, man and woman, that gets fact checked. Anything, so at the beginning of the pandemic, I was on the front lines of reading all of the scientific studies. I'm talking like the very beginning of the pandemic when we were told that it was that COVID was going to have a 3.6% fatality rate, that it, it, it impacted people equally. I was reading all of the studies and all of the data as, it, as they dropped, trying to help inform people about the reality as we were figuring this out. And pretty soon, as soon as I established a pattern of doing that, pretty soon those were all fact-checked because if, if Fauci or the CDC or Gavin Newsom or anybody, um, Andrew Cuomo was doing something that, WHO was doing something different than one of those studies had concluded, then what Big Tech was doing was deferring to the political policy as being science versus the actual science as being fact. So all of the classic examples that I gave in here, election integrity, of course, that doesn't even get a fact check. That just gets you an outright suspension or ban or removal of content. Um, but yeah, I mean, unfortunately, we've gotten pretty good at predicting it at this point. Hi. Hi. What's your name? I'm Kim. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. So uh, my question is, as a woman like myself, have you noticed the ways the radical left tries to tell us what to think, especially with the cases like the transgender ideology and the example you provided with Leah Thomas, and how do you deal with it? Yes, it's, and it's ironic because the left who claims to champion women are actually the most misogynistic of them all, from the lies that they tell us about the gender pay gap, 
listen, there, there is a difference in how men and women are paid, but it's not based on sexism. It's not because there's this cohort of, of sexist white men who are plotting to pay us just a little bit less because of what our DNA and what our bodies look like. Like, that's not reality. The reason there's a gender pay gap is because men and women make different choices in their careers, from college majors to how far our commute is, to how much overtime we work, to how, much, how many hours in general on average that we work. All of these things factor into the amount that you're paid, but the left wants to use a twisted version of reality, just an element of truth, and use that against women. They also try to tell women that our choices are wrong if our choices differ from men. All right, that's kind of inherent to the gender pay gap thing, is they tell us, well, you should want to make the same decision as men, as men do, and if you don't, then maybe you're doing something wrong, when truthfully as women, not all women, but truthfully as women, Typically, we do have different priorities than men. We, we want to prioritize flexibility in our career. We want to be around our children and our families. And that's a good thing, and it should be respected. Um, how do you handle this? First of all, trust your instinct. Don't let somebody, whether it's a radical leftist, anybody, tell you that what you want for your life as a woman, whether you have an innate desire to have children, to be married, to create a family, to create a home, don't let anyone tell you that that's wrong or that's less or that you're not living up to your full potential or that your value is found in the workplace. That is a lie. Don't let, don't let your, the truth that lives in your heart, your conscience, who God created you to be, be overrun by people who are trying to use you as pawns in their political game. If you surround yourself by people who support you and value you for who you are, then the political shenanigans becomes just that noise in the background. And then you can teach your family and your children and your friends and the people around you and you can use your career and whatever you aspire to do once you enter the workforce to help others understand that reality as well. Hi, I'm, I'm a boomer and you were spot on. Uh, very late to Facebook and that's the only platform I have. <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> I appreciate that you probably are one of the ones that watch my videos over there. Yes, you bet. Um, but my question is, I get, I get your triad, follow that and so forth. What about the foreign threat from a platform? You said you're not on TikTok. Isn't there a foreign threat coming from overseas, China, wherever, uh, because of a platform like TikTok with information that they shouldn't have and so forth? Yes, I mean, that? that's one of the reasons that I'm not currently on TikTok. It's, it's always that question, actually. My team and I discuss this often because TikTok is shaping our culture, whether we like it or not. It's the, it's the biggest platform. It's where trends start. Um, and in that sense, like, that's where I want to be. I'm, I'm a culture warrior. I want to be at the, at the forefront of that. On the other hand, TikTok is owned by a company called ByteDance that is associated with the Chinese Communist Party. And what they do is they collect everyone's user data in order of course, at some point, in some way, to use that against us. They are allowed, if you download that app on your phone, they can have access to every single thing, every text message, every photo, every phone number, everything on your phone, which is a really scary thing in the hands of a nation that wants to subvert us. So there is certainly, uh, there is certainly a foreign threat. There have been some people who have suggested that we should ban TikTok if they're owned by the Chinese communists, and I'm not opposed to that. I think that, I think we should be pretty strongly against the domestic subversion that the Chinese communists are waging against us because that they don't want to go to traditional war with us. What they want to do is they want to topple us from within. And that's one of the ways that they're doing it. So if we recognize it, we certainly should put a stop to it. Yeah. You, you hear that millennials? Z, they're not millennials. The, the Z, the X, whatever. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you for your question. All right. Uh, thanks for coming first off. But my question was if you would be able to, um, elaborate more on that ESG score you were referring to and if that's why we see a lot of uh, companies go woke even if it uh, negatively affects their bottom line. Yes, great question. So um, I actually just spoke at NatCon down in Miami, Florida last week on a panel about ESG. So ESG, as I said, stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance. It is a social credit score. It's a metric against which companies are scored. So you might have heard of the social credit score that the Chinese Communist Party uses uh, against their individual citizens meaning they rate their citizens on, well, basically whether you're a good communist, but they rate them on whether they follow the law, whether they are supportive of the Chinese Communist Party, whether on social media they're critical, you're downgraded or upgraded based on what you say and what you do, and as a result, you have privileges revoked. So if you say something against the Chinese Communist Party, then you could 
not be allowed to buy a plane ticket, or you could not be allowed to buy um, a house, or you might not be allowed to send your children to school. And this is the way that the Chinese Communist Party has, well, exerted control over their citizens. So understanding that ESG, environmental, social, and governance uh, metrics, is the same thing, but instead of being applied to individuals, it's applied to businesses. And the arbiter of this, the, the what it is, ESG was first conceived by the World Economic Forum. It was then defined by the United Nations back in 2015. And now the biggest banking firms in our nation and around the world rank other businesses based on this score. And the reason they do that is because the biggest banking firms are responsible. They are the gatekeepers of whether other businesses can get access to capital. So whether you can get a loan, whether you can invest. If you don't have access to capital, you obviously can't take part in the market. And so these big banking firms rate companies on this credit score in order to coerce the companies into using part of their business. And when I say using part of their business, a business's primary responsibility should be to its employees, of course, but to the consumer, to the marketplace. Especially if you're an investment firm, you should invest based on what you believe will get the, the, the highest return, the best return for your investor. You shouldn't invest based on, based on a metric that will get a lower return, but will also push your political, your political agenda. That's actually a completely unethical thing to do. It should be a completely illegal thing to do. Um, and there are fortunately states across the country who are working towards defining this um, to be illegal. But what these banking firms do is they become the gatekeepers of who can take, take part in the marketplace. And if these companies don't kowtow to, um, to these, these very radical leftist ideology items, sometimes it's abortion, sometimes it's critical race theory, oftentimes it's DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, which is a euphemism for essentially racism and discrimination and religious persecution, then they're not allowed access to the market. I mean, I'm sure that you guys have all seen in workplaces and at school these DEI initiatives. These places have to do this. They, even if the administrators don't want to, even if there's protesters and customers who don't like it, they don't really have a choice because if they don't have a high enough ranking on this metric, then these bigger, these bigger lending companies or these banking institutions won't allow them to be part of the marketplace. So ESG is here. It's not, this is not something that's coming here. It's not something that people are just talking about. It exists right now. It exists. Um, BlackRock is part of it. Vanguard is part of it. Bank of America is part of it. Um, and if this is one of the biggest threats internally in the United States, that if we don't stop, will fundamentally change whether, not only whether you're able to do business, but eventually what you're able to do as an individual. And I'll give you one quick example. In Australia right now, where ESG is a little further advanced than we are, there was a bank in, in Australia, a large bank, that has become, begun to deny individuals loans for gas-powered cars because it violates the ESG when it comes to climate change and fossil fuels. We're this close to being there if we don't put a stop to this. If we don't understand what it is, define it, and use the power of state and federal governments to prohibit it. Hi, thanks for coming tonight. Thanks for having um, me. My question is, can you explain a little bit about Amazon's uh, role with big tech censorship? Because I'm familiar with the apps that I'm on, like Instagram or Facebook, but I don't know too much about Amazon. Sure. So the best example of Amazon being part of this evil trifecta is the fact that most websites, I don't know the exact percentage, but most websites are hosted by Amazon web, web services. Meaning if you have, if you create a website, you might go through any number of just site builders, but all of your data is on a server somewhere and that's owned by Amazon. And what Amazon has been doing lately since Parler, but also with um, also with Truth Social and other, other um, right-wing websites or forums or apps, is they're making rules about what can be said on these apps if, if they want to be um, hosted if they if they want the continuation of the hosting that they're relying on on Amazon Web Services and there's not a lot of competition in that area so if you get kicked off of the servers at Amazon it's not like you can say like okay well I'll just I'll just go over here and put my put my website on there no they're giving very short deadlines for extremely difficult changes to be made to sometimes moderation policies, sometimes content in general, and certainly the transfer of that data that's just unrealistic for 
smaller independent organizations to be able to pull off before Amazon Web Services just turns off the light. Good evening, my name is Mary Francis and I'm a first year here at DeSales. And my question is, what can conservative voices do to make sure their opinions are heard given big tech censorship? That's a good question. I mean, that's a question that I deal with on a daily basis facing big tech censorship. Fortunately, there are platforms right now that are, are embracing free speech. They are not restricting. As of now, fingers crossed, Amazon, or not Amazon, Apple Podcasts is not censoring content. Spotify in general is not censoring content. Sometimes a little bit, they're dipping their toe in it. Um, Rumble is not censoring content. They're committed to free speech. So is Locals. So there are a lot of platforms um, that are out there that you can use. I mean, one of the most important things that, that students, that you as students can do is you can have conversations with your friends about this. This is something that's changed a lot since I was in college compared to your experience in college, is it's become a very difficult thing to discuss politics with your friends now. Whereas 10, 15 years ago, Republicans were friends, friends with Democrats, liberals, friends with conservatives, and it didn't always matter. People just did stuff and lived life and it didn't, it didn't impact. And now it seems like a prerequisite to a conversation or a relationship or a friendship is total agreement on really serious ideological issues. So one of the things that you can do is you can practice listening to your leftist friends, listening to why they care about what they care about and what their arguments are for radical leftist ideas. And the first step is just to listen. It's not to data dump all the reasons that they're wrong, all the information that you know, is to listen and to create an environment where they're a little bit more comfortable actually discussing something with you so that you can then ask some, some questions, some strategic questions like, oh, but what about you know this? If you're talking about abortion, for example, what about the fact that it's not just the woman's body, that the baby is a separate, unique human being with DNA of its own, which makes it about two bodies, not just one. You, know, you can ask them questions. And that's one of the most important things that, um, that young people can do is to try to open up the forum of discussion again, because even even leftists, and I say that with a chuckle, even leftists have innate goodness in their heart. We are all human beings. We are all children of God. We are all um, we all have human nature, which leads us to want the best for others. There's just been the indoctrination in our nation that's told young people that the best for others is all the leftist policies. So if you kind of look at it from a standpoint of, oh, we share in common a desire for the best for humanity, then you can start having those discussions about why maybe the policies they support don't achieve that goal. Hi, Liz. Thank you for coming tonight. Thanks for having me. My name's Mark. I know I look like Mark Zuckerberg, but I'm not Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> Uh, so my question is a little bit more generic, but as we approach the next presidential election, do you think it's time for Republicans and conservatives to move past the Trump era and onto a new candidate and strategy, or do we hold on to Trump and his ways and risk losing another election? Great question. I get this question at every single event. It's the classic Trump versus DeSantis versus Cruz question, right? Um, this is what I think about this question. First of all, I at this point... I think it's somewhat of a moot point. I think that the likelihood of President Trump running in 2024 is about 99.99999%. I think the raid on Mar-a-Lago made it even closer to 100%. I will be absolutely floored if President Trump does not run for re-election. So given that, we can look at the reality of the situation and that these other candidates have said that if President Trump runs, then they will defer to him as they would if he were the incumbent. So do I anticipate a primary with a lot of Republicans, including President Trump? I don't. And I think that President Trump will run. Um, regarding the, the phraseology of the era of Trump, let me tell you a couple of things that I really appreciated about what Trump did as president and a couple of things that I did not appreciate. The things that I appreciated is I appreciated that he was a fighter, that he was willing to go in and he understood that our political environment is no longer an environment where Republicans and Democrats share a vision of our nation, a love of country, and simply differ on the ways to achieve a common goal. Right? And the example that I'll give is border security. 15, 20, 30, 50 years ago, Democrats and Republicans all agreed that the border should be secure. We just differed on how to do it. You know, should it be personnel, border patrol? Should it be a wall? Should it be funding? How should we do this? And so that was the squabble in Congress. 
Now, Republicans and Democrats fundamentally disagree about whether we should have a secure border at all. Democrats want a completely open border. Republicans want a sovereign nation, want a secure border. President Trump, for the first time in our modern history, understood that the political opposition that we are facing does not like the United States that the political opposition that we are facing want Marxism in our country. And because of that, he didn't give them an inch. He didn't compromise for the sake of compromise. There is no virtue in compromise when what's being compromised is our principle. So he really understood that and he fought well. And he, he ushered in this new era of what we call based conservatism, right? Where we understand that there is a role for government in a role for government when it comes to the legislation of certain types of morality. And I know that 10 years ago, that was a very controversial phrase, but the new conservatism is the more of the conservatism of Edmund Burke versus the libertarianism of John Locke. And Trump, believe it or not, was one of the ones who helped usher that in. And I appreciate that. I thought that the, for the first three years of his presidency, he was a very, very good president. My two disagreements, my biggest beefs with President Trump were how he handled COVID. I thought he handled COVID very poorly. I thought he supported lockdowns. He obviously pushed the vaccine. He pretty much, I mean, he elevated Fauci, right? I thought he mishandled COVID completely. And I thought he surrounded himself with deep staters, suck-ups, and morons. And that was what really hurt him. Um, so when you talk about the era of Trump and his ways, it's a little hard to know which of those ways you're talking about. I don't want the same COVID policies. I do want a fighter that recognizes the political enemy that we're fighting is, has that fire in his belly to go and fight that fight. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Do you think we could have a fighter in another candidate without the Twitter? Without the Twitter, meaning like without his mean his tweets? Twitter. His Twitter, yes. Did you his not tweets. think his tweets were hilarious, though? Yeah, okay. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Hi, thank you for coming down. Uh, I had a question about, you know, the power of big tech, corrupt politicians, and just a lot of people who are in that position of power in general. Uh, I was wondering, like, how can we as American citizens keep these people in check? Well, first, by doing what I, what I just said, which is to understand the political opposition that we face, understand what their ideology is. And that's been a mistake that the Republican Party has made for about the last 40 years, 50 years maybe, is not really understanding the value of our culture, not understanding that when we let the left, cultural Marxists, subvert our culture, they do so in order to topple what Antonio Gramsci calls the civil institutions in our nation in order to then topple the governmental institutions. It's like a slow Marxist revolution because the modern Marxists realize that we're not gonna have this worker-led revolution that's gonna violently overthrow the ruling class. They understand that in order to spark this revolution, there needs to be a new vanguard, there needs to be um, a sort of re-education of the vanguard to create divisions. And this, this sounds really complicated. It sounds really, it sounds really deep, and it is. And that's what we're facing. And Republicans, for the last 50 years, have only wanted to talk about econ the economy. They've only wanted to talk about jobs. They've wanted to stay away from the uncomfortable issues. They've embraced this more libertarian idea of like, oh, you can do whatever you want. Let's remove all morality from law so that it's a neutral playing field. Naively, um, forgetting or not realizing that when you remove morality from state law, it doesn't create an absence of morality in statutes. It just allows the left to put their version of morality in, in law. And that's what we, we see. The, we see that coming to fruition in all the laws at the state levels that the left has imposed on us. Um, so we hold them accountable by first recognizing what we're facing by speaking out, by not caving to their threats to silence us, by voting for candidates for office who will fight for us, and by making sure that we educate ourselves and our families and our children on why this country is great. Hi. Hi. Um, so I just kind of had a question about like history more so. Um, I have a friend who posted a quote from Margaret Sanger on her story on like Instagram, and it was a ra very racist, kind of disgusting like quote but it was historical and Instagram took it down because it was racist. Are the, do you think they're trying to more so cover up history or cover up like people's feelings? Well, in that case, they're trying to cover up, I assume, is this the human weeds one quote? Um, no, it was- Which one was it? Um, like the, I want to abolish black and minorities, white supremacy, oh, that like one. The one that says like, we can't have the word get out that we want to exterminate the black population. Yes. Yeah, I'm familiar with the, 
um, the quote. No, the reason that the radical left sanitizes the history about Margaret Sanger is because Margaret Sanger is dead, but Planned Parenthood is her legacy and Planned Parenthood lives on. And they, they revere her and they celebrate her and they propagate her eugenicist and racist values in every policy that in every policy and every action and every abortion that they inflict on women, particularly women of color, particularly black women, particularly black babies, by placing their abortion clinics in close proximity to black neighborhoods, by not fully informing black women of what exactly that, what they call products of conception is, the POC, that baby in the woman's womb, um, they allow, they accept donations, Planned Parenthood does, earmarked to kill black babies. I mean, this is a fundamentally racist, eugenicist institution that was started on those exact principles by Margaret Sanger. And the reason that Instagram, it was Instagram, that censored that is because they don't want people to know the truth because the truth is so abhorrent. Hello. Um, as a computer science major joining the technology space at some point, um, how can I make a big impact on big tech to counteract it? Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. A conservative going into computer programming. We're going to need so many conservatives in computer programming over the next decade. So there's so many things you can do. It depends on whether you want to work in the big tech swamp. Do you want to um, expose big tech for what it is? Do you want to es essentially infiltrate big tech and then share the reality of what you see? I know that that comes at personal expense, but that's necessary. Some of these some of the reality of the censorship that we're seeing on big tech, we're aware of because courageous individuals who did not agree with the censorship were willing to risk their jobs, perhaps risk their career and share that with um, the world. So there's that. There are institutions and companies and individuals and groups, et cetera, who are working to build up this non-cancelable infrastructure that I mentioned. And they are in desperate need of skilled programmers, of individuals that aren't just conservative, but conservative combined with excelling at their, at their, um, at their craft. So you can, I mean, you can take it either of these two ways. Maybe you take it both ways. You know, maybe you do one and then the other, but um, staying true to yourself and understanding that, that what you see is important and that what you say can be even more important um, could help change, could help change people's perception of big tech, which of course impacts people's acceptance of political policy towards tech. Thank you. I've got I think to we go have time ahead. for one more. Do yeah, yeah. Just want to say I listen to your show every morning on the way to work. Thank you. And, I appreciate that. <laughs> and I was like, uh, I don't watch it because I'd end up in a ditch. But <laughs> <laughs> good, but, good uh, judgment on your part. <laughs> but uh, I just wanted to say uh, something that's come up in the news recently is about this digital dollar. And, and the reason I bring that up is, I know, I know I don't look like it, but I'm about to have my fourth and fifth grandchildren in the next six months. That's, yeah. great. That's wonderful. So, but, um, oh, sorry. But, uh, but what, I, what I wanted to say was um, uh, it concerns me because that kind of opens up the door. I'm, I'm a kind of a biblical reader and things like that. And the book of Revelations where it talks about, you know, not being able to buy and sell. I mean, this is something that they could really implement something like that. And I'm very concerned, what can we do as people to rein this in? Yeah, so the cryptocurrency discussion is really interesting because the point of cryptocurrency or a digital dollar is actually to counteract the inflationary policies that the left is intentionally implementing that impact or that devalue our dollar, right? Cryptocurrency is a way of hedging your bets against um, it's, it's cynicism, right? I mean, I invest in it because look at what Biden has done to our dollar by all of this spending. But the, the reason that it has value, even though it's, you know, a fiat currency in a sense, like there's not, it's not gold, it's not silver, it's not backed by anything. The reason that it has value is because it is decentralized, because it's not controlled by the state. That's the purpose of it, is that it doesn't have um, state control. And so if you allow a state to issue a cryptocurrency, it completely undermines the point of cryptocurrency to begin with. There's, I, I mean, I can't imagine using uh, a digital dollar that was in, that was endorsed or that was backed in any way or issued in any way by a government because they absolutely could use this to enforce a social credit score. It could become, I mean, companies could do this. It doesn't even have to be the government. Imagine the ESG stuff we were just talking about. A company saying, well, if this if this individual or this 
business, maybe you own a business, if your business doesn't measure up on my ESG score, we're not gonna, we're not gonna allow you to purchase any of our products, we're not gonna allow you to sell anything based on, you know, the digital dollar. They could use it to bribe people, they could prevent you. I mean, look at what Canada did, right? They froze, Trudeau froze the bank accounts of people who supported who supported the trucker protest. That's just the beginning of what of what governments we what governments will do. We know that they will do if they have a lever over us to control us. So of course we should reject any kind of state-issued or state-controlled digital currency that it not only defeats the purpose of trying to incentivize our government to be responsible with the value of our dollar, it is a tool to be used against us, so we should reject it. Thank you guys. Thank you very much. Thank you guys so much for having me. I really appreciate it. If you guys, if you guys would pull out your phones right now, whether you're a Spotify gal, whether you're on iTunes, subscribe to my show, give me a five-star rating to try to counteract some of those one-star reviews the left loves to leave on my, on my show. Um, I really appreciate you guys turning out and having me here tonight. It gives me and the whole country great hope to see a generation of young people who are committed to our country, who are committed to liberty, who are so interested in the threats that we face, whether it comes from big tech, whether it comes from cultural Marxism, whether it comes from our own government and the intersection of the three. We, as, as the next generation of leaders in our country, we can solve this problem if we identify what it is. So thank you for having me. <laughs>